Welcome. You're listening to The Difference at Work, a KGA podcast for managers and HR professionals eager to hear from experts and bring new perspectives to our work. In offering employee assistance and work-life programs, KGA hears from clients every day about their increasingly complex work environments. On our podcast, you'll have a front row seat for conversations touching upon everything from crisis management and addiction to employee engagement and stress. I'm Seth Muller, president of KGA. Today's episode of The Difference at Work is focused on responding to crises at work. My guest is Jeff Gorder. Jeff is the clinical director of R3 Continuum. He is a longtime expert in providing on-site critical incident response for employers. He has responded directly to the September 11th terrorist attacks, Hurricane Katrina, the Virginia Tech shootings, Deepwater Horizon oil spill, the earthquake and tsunami in Japan, and the Newtown shooting tragedy. Also, and in full disclosure, R3 Continuum is a trusted partner that we at KGA use to support our clients when tragedy strikes outside the Northeast. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Seth. Great. Let's just jump in by defining some terms. Many organizations refer to having, quote, I'm using air quotes here, critical incidents versus a crisis. What is this referring to and what's most common here? Well, that's an interesting question because crisis or a critical incident is often defined by the venue or the organization or the industry in which it occurs. So, for example, in IT parlance, a critical incident is a system-wide failure or a data breach. Sure. In fire service, a critical incident would be a four-alarm blaze with potential fatalities. So, in our context, what we're discussing in a business setting We've kind of been moving towards the term of disruptive event because we recognize there's a wide range of situations that occur that are not easily defined, not easily put in a box, but strike every organization potentially. So it could range from the unexpected death of an employee of a heart attack over the weekend to an active shooter scenario. Where an entire region, if not the whole country, is caught up in it. Or a natural disaster, and yet... Businesses are called upon to respond to the emotional disruption that occurs from that. Not just emotional, but also operational. Because I think this is where EAPs offer a critical service. It is an area that touches both the humanitarian and the business continuity needs of an organization. Mm -hmm. Recognizing that the employees are emotionally impacted by these events to one degree or another. And it's part of corporate responsibility to offer a tangible, solid response. It's also true that the organization is duty-bound and uh, fiscally smart to say, how soon can we get operations going again? Uh, We need to to be back in production. Um, Every hour that we're offline is detrimental to the overall health of the organization. Right, right. And interestingly enough, that serves both purposes because So often, whenever I've met with an employee following an event, and I'll ask you, what do you most want right now? Often they'll say, I just want to get back to work. I just want to get back to that which seems predictable, familiar, where I know what I'm supposed to do. Within that person's control, perhaps. Yes, yes, and restores a sense of control, Mm. um, which is, in fact, functional. It's, It's what I call functional resilience. It's their saying, listen, it's not that I'm trying to minimize or pretend that this didn't happen. But part of how I get through this 
is controlling what I can control. So really moving to a broad concept of disruptive events, but for the individual functional resilience, exactly. hands-on back to what they know how to do. Mm -hmm. Which serves both the individual and the organization. It's a win-win situation. I think most of us believe, perhaps this is not true of you given your line of work, but I think most of us believe tragedy or trauma will not really touch us, right? Just talk a little bit about the commonplace of workplace crisis or disruptive events, to use the new term. Currently, we respond about 1,500 times a month to events that impact a workplace. And so over the years, in over 20 years of providing uh, response to these kinds of events, we've begun to see patterns. The top three events consistently are unexpected employee death, for example, mm -hmm. of a heart attack over the weekend or a car accident on the way home from work. Kind of what you would call course of life events, things that can occur, uh, occur anywhere at any time. But not anticipated. But not anticipated, mm. exactly. And then uh, robberies, either retail robbery or mm. potentially at the person's home or, or in the parking lot, things of that nature. And then the third largest is reduction in force in that over the years, any organization of a significant size often has to make that very difficult decision. And again, that is disruptive. It's not, it's not traumatic. You know, the, the, of, of those three, of an unexpected employee death, a robbery or a reduction in force, only one of them, robbery, even has the potential to be traumatic, to be likely to cause a, a PTSD type of reaction. The other two are ones that, again, I would say course of life or course of business type of events. The unifying factor is that all three of them is are emotionally disruptive. And what's interesting, not on your list, are the man-made, what I refer to as natural disasters, the shootings, or even what I now hear about as the ambient political environment uh, in terms of causing these kinds of things. I think as an EAP, we hear them quite a lot, but when it comes to the issue of an organization needing response, they haven't made your list. Exactly. And, and even though active shooter situations or a mass shooting situation are clearly the things that grip everybody's heart. They're the things that are going to make the headlines, and it is every employer's fear, no doubt. It's also true that statistically, they are the least likely type of event to happen. Got it. That's very helpful. Um, so it is local, it is person to person, and it is the unanticipated uh, within my workforce. Exactly. Got it. Let's go within an organization a little bit and talk about what happens or what is often happening immediately following a crisis. And how do you take this into consideration when you're organizing a response? Sure. So when the unexpected happens, when it strikes, whether it is, again, large-scale event of the kind that we know is going to be on TV, or whether it's something that is intensely personal, maybe a, a note-passing robbery that involves only one teller, or um, the death of a beloved coworker from from cancer or some other illness. In each of these situations, it creates a level of disruption to the organization. So people are offline, they're wondering, they're talking, they're trying to make sense of this. What just happened? And how do I how do I incorporate this in there? There's that shock of the unexpected that all of us have. And it's human nature to to pause, step back and say, how do I 
how do I manage this? Where do I go with this? It often is accompanied with a clear sense of safety. You know, is it safe? If it happened to that person, could it happen to me? And that safety, interestingly enough, again, obviously in large-scale events or in an active shooter situation, safety is a first and primary concern, also in a natural disaster. But even in the unexpected death of an employee, perhaps again of a heart attack, it leads all of us when we're face-to-face -face with mortality to ask the question, well, if it happened to so-and-so, could it happen to me, my loved ones? So that response is happening up and down the organizational chain, if you will. The, the CEO, the executive leaders, the, the, the manager, the team lead, right down to rank-and-file employees then. Exactly. So when you walk through the door and people are in that space of um, realizing perhaps their sense of security uh, needs to be reevaluated, re mm -hmm. isn't as good as they thought, what does that mean you're first doing when you're, you're coming on site and responding? How, how, how is that a part of the way you uh, bring your services forwards? So we train all of our consultants in our network to, to accomplish three things when they come out there. First off, stabilization the calming, reassuring presence of a trained professional who comes in and is able to, um, is not running away from the situation, but is running towards the situation, bringing a sense of stability, of predictability again. So that, that right there is a visible expression, a tangible expression of corporate care and an expression that, okay, somebody's here who has the background, the training, the skills to handle this. Um, so after stabilization, comes ventilation, allowing people an opportunity to simply talk about what this means to them, what's going on. It is part of when confronted with a difficult or shocking or sad or tragic situation, it's human nature to wrestle with the meaning. What does this meaning, what does it mean to me? The process of meaning attribution is a natural phase that we all go through as we try and make sense of it. Explain the term for me a little bit. I'm yeah. not following. So meaning attribution. Here I am in uh, my colleague passed yeah. away unexpectedly the day before I'm upset. What does meaning attribution mean? Right. Typically people go in either one of two directions or sometimes both. But they'll say, what does this say about me as a person? How did I handle it? Am I weak or strong? Did I face it with... Oh with bravery or did I, do I feel ashamed of my reactions? Do I think that I responded with strength and resilience or do I think secretly is something wrong with me? Did I not rise to this occasion? So you're saying immediately following people do spend time and visit this space of yes. self-evaluation yeah. in the face of something that happened. What does it say about me or Conversely, what does it say about you? What does it say about my company, my community, my coworkers? I'm proud to work here. Or yes. conversely, this stinking place doesn't care. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. we, we took a hit, but we stood strong. Boston Strong is a great example. Right. Where a community came together and people were able to uh, tap into resilience as a, as a whole. And so, so again, when an event strikes unexpectedly, what does this say about me? Or what does this say about my company, my team, my country? Got it. So that's the second phase of, exactly. uh, of what people are in. And ventilation. So yeah. ventilation yes. allows people to articulate that, begin to talk about it, and come to that meaning. And then the final one is education. 
to simply share with them, here are some solid things you can do, some pragmatic strategies to help yourself, to help your coworkers, to help your family when you go home. Basic things of self-care that are not rocket science. They're things like make sure you're eating enough um, and of the right kind of foods. Make sure you're staying hydrated. Reach out to those who are in your natural support system. Again, these are not complex or highly sophisticated, but in the immediate aftermath after a crisis, what you want is something that I can do right away that is simple, that begins to build momentum. Right, okay, I can drink something right now. I can go for a walk. I can call It is that practical. my brother. It's that practical. Yeah. And that kind of education then helps them re-engage with, ah, I did this the right thing. Now I can do the next right step and the next one after that. So that makes a lot of sense in terms of how, how you are initially guiding whomever you're interfacing with. Again, the CEO down to right, rank exactly. and file employees and giving them that ability to, to take practical steps. What are some mistakes you see within an organization when you're arriving? Because um, I'm assuming there are things that sometimes happen that perhaps are counterproductive. And I do mean to ask this question in the, in the context of well-intended organizations trying to do the right thing, but perhaps, if you will, getting out over their skis. What, what are the kinds of things that perhaps um, you have to help them either do differently, dial back, or redirect? So probably the most common is a desire to rush past it if we can rush past this, then it's no longer scary, it's no longer upsetting, it's no longer distressing. So, you know, kind of the move along folks, nothing to see here sort of approach that says, let's just get back to work. The Achilles heel in that, because I spoke earlier about, yes, work, returning to work does have a role in right. that functional resilience. But doing so without acknowledging the event and the power of it, it puts the business leader in the untenable position of telling people get back to work without, uh, without acknowledging the power of this event. We often instruct leaders to, do, uh, to follow a very simple mnemonic act. We instruct them to act, A-C-T. A is simply acknowledge and name the event. Again, be right up front and say, yes, this event happened. This was powerful. This was an awful day for ABC Company. And then C is communicate both compassion and competence, care and strength. Be able to say we, we get that this was a powerful blow. All of us are, are, are grieving um, at the loss of John Smith. And, but we're going to find a way to pull together as a team and we can get through this. So both a message of care and a message of strength. That's the C. And then the T in ACT is transition to a future focus. Begin to lay out the plan. Here's what we're going to do this afternoon. Here's what we're going to do tomorrow. Here's what next week looks like. And as you, as a leader begins to lay out that plan, it again is reassuring. People take a deep breath. <sighs> okay, somebody's in charge. So the ACT, the T transition, um, dovetails to my next question, which really is, okay, eventually your crisis response experts leave, what are a few things an organization ought to be doing uh, in the next, I guess, days and weeks, mm -hmm. if you will, the relatively immediate uh, following time frame? Exactly. So oftentimes providing what would be 
um, natural ways in which this group connected or supported each other previously. So, for example, some organizations have potlucks are a simple example of that, or a company picnic, or um, employee of the month, things that are sort of the, the typical sort of things that we don't often recognize the power of those types of events until they're disrupted, until they're not there, until they're not present. And so oftentimes providing space and opportunity for employees to ventilate, to talk about what just happened, and then providing the natural space for them to say, hey, we're going to have a fundraiser to support John Smith's children. Have you seen any good examples of what an organization might do a year out? So depending on the size and nature of the event, it's, also, it's often um, appropriate to have an anniversary event. For example, in a large-scale shooting or natural disaster, something of that magnitude, it makes sense. I wouldn't necessarily encourage somebody to say, here's the one-year anniversary of the reduction in force. Right. We don't want to go back and remember that. That's not necessarily yeah. worth celebrating. Uh, Jeff, we jumped right into what happens during and following a crisis. Let's just back up a little bit. Um, what advice do you have for employers um, who perhaps have not given this a lot of thought? Uh, what are some basic things that people can do to prepare for a disruptive event? Among the things that I often encourage is first and foremost, have an EAP, have an employee assistance program, because EAPs are able to offer that subject matter expertise to be able to help not just devise a single plan for a particular type of event, but to have um, a wellness structure to really tap into the hardiness of an organization to make them ready to respond to an event like that. that that's what EAPs are able to do for organizations that incorporate their EAP. Second to that, I would say have a plan. And by a plan, um, I would say an all-hazards plan. Because so often what people do is they'll say, all right, we need to devise a plan on the last disaster, on the last thing that happened. We're experts on the thing that happened three months ago. And that you, there's no way that you can say, all right, here's my active shooter plan, here's my toxic chemical plan, here's my retail robbery plan. You, you, you couldn't devise sure. enough yep. plans to anticipate what the next possible bad right. thing could be. So an all-hazard plan says that I have about 80% of it ready. I, I, I know what I'm going to do when some kind of crisis hits. And then we tweak the remaining 20% based on the uniqueness of the event that strikes. I think a third, a third thing that organizations um, can do in preparation is to not just have the plan, but communicate the plan. So often what organizations will do is they say, yep, we've got our three-ring binder. we got it all set, and it's on a shelf. I can tell you where it is. And it's not looked at or picked up again in two or three years, and then a crisis happens and nobody even knows Right. When it's hitting the fan, do you think to yourself, wait a minute, there must yeah, be a binder for this. There's got to be a three-ring binder that's going to pull me through Let's this. go find that. So finding uh, the plan, communicating the plan, drilling to the plan um, is just a wise... Even a, an open discussion amongst manager groups around, here are the kinds of things that we have to respond. It doesn't have to be exactly. um, an A to B to C specific plan, but just 
Yeah. Let's talk about how we respond. And that's instrumental in, yeah. again, facilitating that hardiness, the idea that yeah. we've got a plan, we know what we're going to do. Now, we may change it based on, you know, who knows what the event might be, but it's always easier to amend a plan than to try and make one up from scratch in the middle of a crisis. Jeff, this has been very informative. Uh, even though I work in the field, I do always learn from you whenever we talk. So thanks for sharing your time, your experience, and your knowledge today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Seth. It's been an honor. From KGA, this is The Difference at Work. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you access your podcasts. You can find all of the organizations and resources we've referenced in this episode on the podcast page of our website. You can find KGA on Twitter under the handle at KGA Inc. and on LinkedIn. And if you want to talk further about anything you've heard on this episode, we hope you won't hesitate to call. We can be reached at 800-648-9557. Thanks for listening.